Hi everyone, my name is Robert Andriaki and welcome to the Pod 6 Network. And this specific show is going to be called Lockdown Toronto. We've decided to launch this show uh, only because it's timely. Uh, I think people out there are looking for information uh, that is specific to Toronto, which is what we're looking to provide here. We're going to have guests on that will allow you to engage the subjects on a little bit deeper level, a little bit more long form than you're typically seeing in the news. And again, this will be specific to Toronto, helping us through this current lockdown um, about the Pod 6 Network, we were going to launch this a couple months from now, but uh, given the situation, I think we're going to go ahead with this early, at least with this cast, uh, until things start opening up a little bit. It's a little bit rough around the edges, but I hope that you stay with us and grow with us, and I hope you enjoy some of the cast coming up. For our first guest, uh, I have a member of Provincial Parliament. Uh, He's a friend of mine, and I've known him for years, uh, and he is going to walk us through what it was like in the early days of this thing, um, some of the things the government is doing to help us through this, at least at the provincial level, and uh, hopefully he'll provide some insight into what's going on, what can we expect for the future, and his personal take on things, because at the end of the day, uh, we're all human beings, we're all going through this, and uh, he should be able to provide us with a unique perspective on that. If you like what you see, make sure, of course, you subscribe and you like. It depends if you're watching this on video or you're listening to it on audio. If you have any ideas for a podcast or you want to pitch a podcast that you want to do or a vodcast that you want to do to us, get in touch at info at pod6.com. That's info at pod6ix.com. And we can go from there. Um, Tell all your friends. Feel free to share. And hopefully you stay with us and uh, grow with us, as I said. Enjoy. Tom, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you being here. And uh, this is the first vodcast of the Lockdown Toronto series. Um, And I wanted to bring you on this show, not only because I've known you for years and you've been a good friend for a long time. And for full disclosure, I worked for Tom for a little while. Uh, but that's how I got to know him very well and what an honest uh, person he is and trustworthy in terms of his information. But also because you're an elected representative, a member of provincial parliament for Humber River Black Creek. And considering a lot of the measures that Toronto is currently experiencing are of a provincial nature, um, the lockdown measures, the shutdown of industry, uh, the social distancing stuff, um, it, it, it's worthwhile bringing on a member of provincial parliament to help us through uh, some of the measures that are going on right now and some of the measures that are going to take place in the near future about uh, lifting the lockdown measures and help us understand just generally what this is about and uh, discuss some policy issues. We're going to run the gamut. Um, but first, before I go into that, I would like to explore a little bit uh, how this current crisis, the pandemic, or the news of the potential harm that was coming from COVID-19 reached your ears when it first reached your ears, whether it came just by observing it uh, uh, organically or it came by the way of concerns from constituents, what it looked like at the legislative level within your caucus and and how the news started uh, percolating through the halls of Queens Park. Uh, I'd be interested to hear the origins of it from your end. Welcome, Tom. And if you can speak to that, I'd, I'd appreciate it. 
Thank you very much, Rob. I'm really glad to be here and uh, glad to speak to you about it. Um, <clears throat> certainly, um, early this year, like everybody, I began to hear news reports coming out of China, Wuhan, um, about a new coronavirus. We had all heard of SARS, and um, it spread there and what was happening. And so certainly I was concerned. My thoughts were with families there, and I was hoping that um, they would be able to deal with it, to contain it. Um, but it continued to spread. Um, it, it, we all heard the story as it started to develop, for instance, in Italy. And these were, this was a very, very tragic story as we were hearing there of how they were coping with it. We live in a global world. People travel, they move, um, business, uh, everything, vacation, visiting families. And so the possibilities of pandemics are certainly real. And we're living in one now. So certainly I had my concerns and my concerns about my own community, our country, our province, my own family, um, loved ones, you know, everyday people here and everywhere around the world. And certainly as time progressed, uh, that, you know, conversation started moving that way when I would talk to residents, constituents, um, conversation about coronavirus, COVID became more prevalent. We started, I started hearing more about it. What are we going to do? How if it reaches here, when it reaches here, how will we deal with it? Um, these sorts of things, and, and certainly concerns, you know, and, and conversations um, that I were ha- that I was having. Early on, we, we began to hear the briefings of um, various public officers of health at, at different levels of government. Um, I don't think it was helpful initially that um, conversation, for instance, from the premier about it's okay, go on March break, um, things are going as as usual. Um, these were things that the NDP opposition uh, were, were saying, look, we really need to listen to the public, uh, to the officers of the medical officers of health. These are the people we need to be listening to. Um, there was conversations in the initial stages about changes that had been made, for instance, about repealing sick days in Ontario. And that as we're facing a, a pandemic, um, people need to be supported. If they're feeling sick, they shouldn't be at work. And this was very pre-social isolation, um, the opposition was... Do you have an idea about there. timeline or, or some... Not, I don't mean to ask for specific dates, but it was mid-January, late January, no, no, early February, was, I mean, mid-February? I, I you know, I don't remember the exact dates, mm-hmm. but it was just... It was prior to when social isolation, um, you know, when we started experiencing lockdown and before that, um, there were a lot of conversations about that. So our position was certainly to listen to the advice of health experts. These are the ones that know best. This is what they're here for. This is what their training is about. Right. And, um, and to ensure that, that we bring in legislation and we support the people of Ontario. That's our role. That's our job. That's what we're here to do. And so we were very serious about pushing that. Um, um, issues even around LTCs, ensuring that people, when we move towards LTCs being long-term care. Just for the folks at home, yeah. yes. So when we started to move towards um, defining essential and non-essential businesses, we wanted to ensure that essential businesses, healthcare workers, um, long-term care homes had the proper policies in place and the proper equipment, personal protective gear to be able to protect workers. Um, Of course, protect in the case of healthcare workers, it doesn't just protect them and their families. It protects patients. We had to do everything possible to limit the spread. And it was the role, it's the role of our, the government and the elected officials um, to to do everything we can to support that, to make sure that that's how we move forward. Right. Yeah. On. Uh, yep. So w- when that when that stuff started kick in, um, 
I remember I came back from, I was coming back from overseas. I was traveling for a bit and I came back March 15th. I remember the discussions I was, was monitoring at that time in the lead up to it. As you mentioned earlier, that the the premier was was telling people just go about your business, and that was right up until maybe uh, March, third, March twelfth, I think, I think the weekend of March fifteenth, March fourteenth, that's when things started getting serious, and I think it was March sixteenth or seventeenth when the prime minister started imposing real restrictions on incoming flights about how only Canadian citizens will be allowed into the country. And that's when society started taking it very serious. Now, going back a little bit, when we start thinking about that, the WHO put it on the radar of the world as a global health crisis potential on January 30th. And a lot of people who know me will know I've been very critical of of the federal leadership on on this file. Um but it seems like an incredibly long time, six weeks about, that Canada didn't really just didn't do anything. I mean, my 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 arrival into the country was dotted with zero screening. It re- there was really no screening. I got a piece of paper. I remember coming out of the airport and going to the currency ex- currency exchange lady who was almost in tears about how little uh, the federal regulations were how little how few federal regulations were in place to protect her as just a a worker working in a high-risk area from this stuff um and in terms of how you saw it unfolding at the federal level did you have similar concerns that maybe not enough was being done to get ahead of this uh let alone at the provincial level yeah i mean uh, there were a lot of, so in a lot of the conversations, I heard a lot of the criticisms that um, that you're talking about with regards to that. Certainly, COVID had to come into Canada from somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, I, you know, I don't want to be. I think this is a time where where we're all trying to work together against a common threat, which is the the spread of this virus. I think. Um, when we when we come out of this, I think there are going to be questions. I think people are going to look very critically on on how. Um, different levels of government handled um, handled COVID, how the response to it and in, in, in every facet. And I'm, and I think that, um, I think that's, um, I think time will tell. Right. And just so that people know, Tom is part of the NDP who is the official opposition at Queens park, the opposition, uh, the role of the official opposition is to keep government in check, keep the, the political wing of the government, of empower in check. So um, they have each critic portfolios. Tom, your critic portfolios is consumer. Yeah. Mine is uh, government and consumer services and um, as well as uh, uh, auto insurance. Yeah. So, so they, they are privy to all the information of government, but not necessarily in control of all absolute legislation or how things roll out. And they play an essential function in any democracy in holding government to account while in power. And it's, uh, and, and that might explain a lot of, of why we only see, uh, obviously Doug Ford's the premier, but why, while why we only see legislation coming out of, uh, uh, of, of his office on this matter. Um, so moving forward a little bit, the pr- provincial government introduces lockdown measures, closing all kinds of businesses, non-essential businesses, 
um, which obviously is devastating many people. Um, uh, some people are surviving better than others. Uh, and in terms of lifting those restrictions, it the the original projection was that we were going to have 300,000 cases of COVID in Ontario alone. And a few weeks back, they revised that down to 20,000 cases, which is a huge delta between what was thought to happen and what is going to happen. The original restrictions were to ensure that our public health care system wasn't going to be overrun. And so given that, we ramped up the public health system, got the, got the PPEs in place, and now we have a lot of overhead, or I wouldn't say a lot of overhead, but enough overhead in our public health system that the restrictions can start to be lifted, especially when we were expecting 300,000 and we're only projecting towards 20. I think we're at 16,000 today. And so given that, that's why the provincial government's looking at starting to reopen things. But in the aftermath of that, in the wake of all the closing closings, um, we're starting to see a lot of anxiety, especially when it comes to things like small businesses and which are essentially the first things that will probably be allowed to reopen beyond their current list of things. Um, and it being, what is it? May 1st right now. Yeah, May 1st. It being May 1st, uh, rent's due for a lot of businesses. Um, and the provincial program that they put in place to address this is a program that is supposed to be driven by the landlords. And we're seeing all kinds of articles and petitions going on right now saying the landlords aren't opting into this at all. In fact, they're not even... There's, there, a lot of them are are holding their breath until the details of the measures, which are expected on May 15th, come out. And so it's leaving not only tenants out to dry, it's leaving landlords in the lurch because they don't have enough information to move forward on this. Either that or they're just, by default, disinterested. And I understand that the NDP put forward a Main Street plan to address this as well, but the difference being it would be tenant-driven, yeah. As in the small businesses who are renting the spaces, <clears throat> excuse me, will drive the process and not wait on the benevolence of their landlords who maybe are looking for an opportunity to evict them and get someone in there who would provide higher rent in, in, with a new lease or a big box store or whatever. Can you explain the difference between the current policy in place and the NDP's policy in better terms than perhaps I did? No, I mean, I mean to really simplify, it's exactly what you said. Um, <clears throat> the current system requires an opt-in from landlords. Um, the the main, stay Main Street plan by the NDP opposition is is to provide seventy five percent support directly to these business tenants themselves. Um, the NDP have always believed strongly in the importance of small businesses. They are the cornerstone. They are um, the bread and butter here, um, not just in Ontario but everywhere, and so. This was certainly one of the things as we were moving into COVID and these conversations were happening. Um, we did. I talked about uh, long-term care. I talked about sick days, all of this. But um, there was a lot more that we talked about. We talked about ensuring that s- small businesses are able to remain solvent. Um, there is a period of time where if you stress a small business, um, that, that they may just simply never reopen. And that would not be good whatsoever. This is that would be devastating. So, and we're seeing this, those closures all over the place right now. 
we have to do everything we can to support our small business community. They are so important to Ontario's economy. And um, this is something that uh, we've been really pushing with our plan to provide that direct support uh, to small businesses. And I hear it. Uh, I, I hear it every day. I hear it in my own constituency. Um, we're very active. I'm talking to my constituents, whether they be residents, um, whether they be business residents as well. Um, and they're all concerned. And so this is something that the, the government really needs to work on and improve their support to them. And even if they were to open up today, the revenues that maybe they were enjoying pre-lockdown probably wouldn't um, materialize for months and months and months down the road anyway. So they'll be left in the lurch for months unless, again, the the, the landlords opt into the current plan. And yeah. the NDP plan, Main Street plan would address that directly because it would be driven uh, – the process would be driven directly by the um, th- those most affected, the, the precarious small businesses who are feeling the pinch the most. Um, but I'm seeing that there is a bit more of a – of a campaign to address this issue. And I'd be interested to see what the uptake is of that, of the current provincial plan, because I don't think that it's much, I don't know if anyone's even opted into it yet. I haven't heard stories yeah. about that at all. Um, sorry, go ahead. You can comment. on No, that. no, certainly the small business owners in the business community in my area have been very vocal. Um, and I've heard a lot of support for our, the NDP Save Main Street plan that, as you said, it, it, it provides direct support to our small, small business community. And um, this is something that's preferred. And, and this is, I think, what would provide them the best support during and coming out of the measures that we're facing. And, you know, the, the, the NDP opposition is, is very vocal, pushing the government um, every day. So this is something that... Um, they need to adopt. We need to support our small businesses. And not just them. I mean, we're talking about rent. I do want to mention that I have many tenants in my community. I was a tenant for over 30 years of my life. And um, again, this was something that the opposition was pushing. We must do everything we can possible to support uh, tenants as well, um, especially marginalized com- communities, people that, that are living pre-COVID um, lives, that are challenging lives in the midst of a pandemic, a pandemic in the midst of what we're facing with today are, are under even greater stress than others. And so these are things that, that we, we pushed for and we're continuing to push the supports for tenants to ensure that they just can't be evicted. Um, the proper rent supports that they should be getting and they should have been getting from the beginning. Um, yeah. Cause it's one is, thing to issue the CERB checks at, from the federal government to people, but the, I mean, Especially when it comes to living in Toronto, some of that doesn't cover just even the basic necessities, especially when we have record high unemployment right now. And uh, because tenants tend to make up a little bit more of the um, lower socioeconomic status uh, Canadians, uh, a program specifically directed to tenants, um, residential tenants would probably be a good idea in order to subsidize some of the supports currently in place? The average rent in Toronto uh, is $2,000. That's the average rent. It's um, insane. figures like that. And that's, that's so imagine under um, current measures where people may not be working, um, uh, tenants are under a lot of stress. And so they definitely need the support of this government. So given that you represent a community, Humber River, Black Creek, that is in 
more, I would say, the suburban ring of Toronto, uh, the kind of outer suburban ring uh, where there's a lot of tenants, where people need a vehicle or to take TTC to drive, um, where, you know, there could be pockets of food deserts, like you would have to walk a half hour in order to find even a convenience store that's open. Um, The nature of that kind of neighborhood layout, you know, has not only it provide like I can walk around the corner from my place and go pick up some groceries if I need it within, you know, two minutes if I need it. But there, I mean, it's a, it's a proposition, not only in terms of safety, because a lot of people are taking transit and social distancing on transit is just that much more difficult. Um, but then they're dedicating an incredible part of their day in order to find supplies that may or may not be there or stores that may or may not be open. So how have you been hearing stories like that on the ground and what do you think can be done to address um the the unique nature of the outer suburban ring um the the unique the unique uh, vulnerability of those living in the outer suburban ring of toronto yeah no um no thank you for mentioning that um COVID is affecting every individual um, differently. Every person is, has their own unique experience of how they're going through it and what challenges they're facing. But people from marginalized communities, uh, low-income families, tenants who, who are already under a lot of stress under the current system, um, face a huge amount of pressure and stress uh, during COVID. Uh, one of the things we had been pushing for was the collection of demographic and race-based data um, in testing and, and in other measures as we've gone through it, you know, I, I appreciate that, that the Toronto has started to collect that the public officer of health there, medical officer of health in the city of Toronto has uh, taken that on. But this was something that uh, we believe the province needs to take on because this is affecting different communities differently. And to, to have that, inf- to have that information, to have that data allows us to better provide supports um, to those most vulnerable. This is very important and this has to be a reality for communities across this province. So absolutely. Very, very important. Yeah. And so at the provincial level, if if that data were to be made available, the demographic and race-based uh, analysis done by Toronto's uh, Office of Public Health, uh, provinces could use um, dem- uh, data like that to create specific legislation that could assist in the aftermath, because this thing is lasting probably a year, at, at least until one of three things happen. Herd immunity to the point where new cases are negligible. A, a vaccine gets created, um, which is still probably over a year away, and maybe even two years before there's enough capacity to distribute it, because you know different countries are going to be fighting over different different amounts. Or three, an effective treatment once someone does get it uh, is established or created, which they're working on right now. So we have a lot. This is just the beginning of a very long road. And within that long road right now, I mean, everyone is solidarity, 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 especially when you see the approval ratings of different levels of government, which I personally find troubling because really it's people wanting to find comfort and 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 security in the leadership apparatus of the day. Um, But eventually that's going to wane because it's really the crisis that's creating that approval, not necessarily the the government response, although the government response uh, so far, I haven't seen a lot of issues with it other than the rollout of some bits of legislation. Um, 
but eventually that's going to wane. Questions are going to be answered. New, new, uh, new needs are going to be need to be met, uh, especially when we get maybe perhaps into fall or winter, when um, mental health issues start emerging even more. Um, because of the lack of sunlight in the day, when a second wave uh, could come, as it did in the the nineteen uh, nineteen uh, Spanish flu outbreak, there were three waves. The second being the most deadliest, um, and uh, you know, and economic pressures are going to be maximized because business is going to be shut down. Uh, they couldn't survive even with the supports in place. And what do you know that? Or what might you suspect the government can do or might do in anticipation of that? Because it's going to get worse before it gets better. It might get a little, feel a little bit better over the summer months, but there are going to be waves of 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 adversity that are going to be felt by society. And maybe what do you suspect the government can or might do in terms of assisting that? And where is the best energy? Where can we put the best foot forward in terms of getting ahead of those those challenges? I mean, we talk about future needs or future challenges. Um, there are a lot of needs that are not getting met today. We we just briefly touched on long term care, but I'd like to expand on that. Yes, please. Exactly. This is um, an issue that so, I think is not getting enough enough thrift. So when when you look at the data, the majority. Um, the people that are most vulnerable, when we speak about people who are vulnerable um, to COVID, uh, we're certainly talking about people that have pre-existing conditions, but certainly it, it, there is a huge correlation with age. Um, and so it's our elderly population that are the most vulnerable. And so in our long-term care facilities, you have some of the most vulnerable people living there. And so the opposition, the NEP for years, not just under this government, but under the previous government, have been pushing for stronger regulations, more workers. Uh, there's so many things that, that are happening in long-term care pre-COVID that were heartbreaking stories, pre-COVID. And so now, when you hear that the majority of people who have died to this, to this terrible illness are, are living in long-term care facilities, it's, and that it's continuing to occur. And long-term care facilities that are partially publicly run, partially privately run. Um, Well, you know, we've we've called, we've been calling on this government for for the ministry to immediately take over uh, facilities that are the most hardest hit. And so, even from the beginning, uh, you know, I've had an opportunity to talk to frontline workers, and they had concerns about access to personal protectional equipment from the get-go. where you have staff that are working that are given only part-time hours and that are going from facility to facility. This is not how you um, support people living in long-term care. Proper rules from the get-go weren't occurring. And and still I'm hearing situations where there are places that are rationing equipment to this very day. Um, Ridings across the entire province, and my riding is no different, have long-term care facilities there and there are deaths in our provinces. It's, and these are things that we need to be properly supporting the workers that are there. They need to be giving um, proper gear. They need to be receiving the financial support to be able to do this difficult work. Um, they need to be given the hours to be able to be there to, to, be, to, to support the elderly and to support the most vulnerable. So when we're even talking about coming out of COVID, I hear from renters daily that are, that are concerned, that are just 
trying to, to, to make ends meet. I hear about mm-hmm. businesses daily that, that are not, that are, that are very concerned, not just for the future, but for today. And right. this is something that the government needs to, to move on. Yeah. So, we, so we in terms be of that, the yeah. immediate thing is to take some of these long-term care homes under ministry watch directly. Cause there Absolutely. are pr- private, is it private, not for profit or is it private, private? We have, we have for profit, um, homes across the province we have homes that that are extremely heavy hit and that are not necessarily they're not accepting uh, any how does one support. regulate such a nebulous system of long-term care like when did that happen did that happen under the mike harris government or the i mean it, the liberal government when did it devolve from ministry because i mean they I remember in the TSSA, they basically privatized public safety with industry. So there was, when did all that happen? When did we relegate long-term care homes, our elderly and some of the most vulnerable people um, yeah. to I, I private for-profit sure. entities? I don't know. I don't know when, when that specifically began, um, but it, it is an ongoing situation. And this is something that, um, and, and it's a lot of these for-profits that we're seeing a lot Shameful. of the, the hardest hit. Yeah, Shameful. So, yeah. So this is something that we need to ensure that the staff are properly supported. They need to have the gear. Um, they need to have the, the, the proper equipment to protect um, their, the vulnerable people that they're taking care of every single day, giving everything of their, their heart and soul to, to support them. They need to be protected themselves and they need to be able to protect their families as well. And this is something, so these are things that we need to be doing today. Is there, I know you're part of the opposition, so you might not be um, uh, privy to the mechanics of what's going on logistically in the background. I mean, we see images of Doug Ford running around in in jeans and a t-shirt with a mask on, grabbing protective gear and delivering it. But what, if, if people are listening out there and they have abilities to provide um, especially when it comes to the long-term care homes, are, how should they proceed if they wanted to um, to to proceed with that? Is there a government program? Is it at the federal level? Is it at the provincial level? You might not have the answer to that, but maybe it's something we could uh, we could explore. No, I mean, I mean, certainly um, there are abilities for people to to make contributions if if you have the means, and certainly I, I really encourage people. Um, we all need to be doing our part, supporting local food banks. Um, this is something I was proud to see my staff uh, join me in, in um, supporting a local food bank with. I love your staff, by the way. You're very lucky. <laughs> thank you. I know Shout I'm... out to Alita, David, Evelyn. Awesome. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, no, uh, this is something that um, we are trying to encourage. There are so many wonderful people in my community for, for every story and, and all the stress that we're feeling under COVID. There's so many beautiful stories of love, um, of people connecting with one another reaching out to see how they're doing, you know, looking out for vulnerable members, even that might be living on their street. Of course, always observing social distancing rules. Um, you know, I, we all should be, um, if we can, and we have the means, and again, these are very difficult times, and there are many people right now who certainly are, are don't have the ability to be able to do that. They're just struggling right now to make ends meet for themselves, for their families, yeah. for their loved ones. But if you have the ability um, there's many places online where you can go out there and, and do that. Um, actually, so I've been I've been having conversations every day, reaching out to community members, and there have been so many great stories. For instance, there's one uh, 
a nurse, an ER, uh, an emergency nurse who's still waiting for her accreditation here in, uh, to be able to practice in Ontario. When she saw what was unfolding, she had told me, particularly after China and Italy, um, she reached out to be able to have her name be put on a list that if, if there is a need for people that, um, that could be able to provide uh, some sort of expertise, you know, um, to be able to do that. So uh, this was something that she had put out there and she'd said, I know that it's in the midst of a pandemic, but she spoke about the duty as a healthcare provider, um, that if there's any way to be able to do that. And that, that really speaks to, to our essential workers, um, the people that are going out there, especially our healthcare workers, but our first responders. And the truth is um, our essential workers, everyone's essential in the society. And I mm-hmm. think we are learning even, even the people that, people that are, that are stocking the shelves in grocery stores. They're essential. We're all essential in the society. Every single person is doing their part um, to make this wheel turn. And we have to do everything we can to support one another. That's a wonderful way to put it. Everyone has to do their part to help the wheel turn. I mean, if the only thing that you can do is ensure that you're able to survive day to day, by all means, you have to focus on that. But for anyone else who has uh, the means, whether it be with time uh, financially, even materially, um, you know, there are plenty of ways to look, right. look to contribute and, and, and assist. And maybe perhaps I'll, I'll research some and put them in the show notes, uh, below, uh, after once this gets posted, but, uh, that's a wonderful story. So, um, there's many, there's, uh, the, you know, keep I've, going, I've spent... keep going. I'd, I'd love to I, hear these because we sure, don't, we um... only get a lot of like the things that are occupying my feet and it's driving me crazy is, What's going on south of the border? As if that's supposed to make us feel better about our predicament. Hey, for those who don't, for those who are kidding themselves, Canada screwed this up. We screwed it up. We, uh, the, the measures that are put in place were too much too late. They weren't, they didn't uh, get ahead of it. We are in almost the same position as the U.S. at a per capita level. Um, just because there's a clown show going on south of the border doesn't necessarily mean that we're in the clear or we did it somehow correct but a lot of the feed is taken up with the political hobbyism i see of like oh trump said this today or trump said that today who cares what's going on at home how can we move forward on this how can we help help make it easier for everyone and how can we look at this through a sober lens what are the policy priorities that we should be focusing on what should we be pressuring our government to do even though we have a, an intense approval and affinity towards them right now. What can we be pressuring them to do, at least not even in the medium term or long term, whether it beca- become the long-term care facilities, which is an intense point of, should be an intense point of focus for everyone. The long-term care facilities are a disaster, to put it in Doug's terms. And what does this look like? What can we anticipate are going to be the challenges in the next few months uh, the mental health stuff, the second wave stuff, um, the economic destruction. And uh, it's, it's, it's incredibly important for, for people to just go out there and look and see how you can help. Let's make it a little bit easier for everyone. Uh, Tom, you had more stories. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt and go on a rant, but I just feel <laughs> so... It's okay. It's just I have such a internal 
burn about this and um you're gonna you got i'm sorry in advance for everyone watching and listening you're gonna see that come out periodically throughout the guests and i apologize to the guests in advance as well you're gonna see that burn start burning a little hotter every time i uh, i start tapping into it but sorry tom it's okay to show people where you stand it's okay to show people your feelings <laughs> right. right so um no i i, I respect everything you're saying um no, I would love to share those stories too. And, and, and I do want to add this one thing. Um, in addition to, I talked about essential workers and what that means, but the truth is every single person um, has had a hand in s- stopping the spread. If, if, you're, if you're staying home right now, um, people that are doing everything they can to alter their lives, and it's difficult. I hear from seniors who are saying they haven't seen their grandchildren in a long time, um, that's not easy. And, you know, I have these conversations porch to porch uh, or it'll be in, a, in the phone calls that we're making to check up on people to see how they're doing at home. Um, hey, you guys are all, doing telephone town halls, correct? Or have you done? Yeah. yeah we, Explain yes. a little bit about that. Cause I think it's a very effective yeah. personally, you know, my, I have a background in political strategy and I find telephone town halls an excellent way to get in touch with a lot of people, especially in the suburbs where home phone numbers are still a thing home telephones are still a thing and it's a really effective way not only to get out to people who might not otherwise have a new uh, be familiar familiar and comfortable with new modes of communication like uh, facetime or, or whatever zoom mm-hmm. as part of this is coming over mm-hmm. um but t- explain a little bit about the telephone town halls and why they're they can be very effective um people are adapting you know under social isolation rules people are adapting uh, certainly so um, finding ways to be able to reach out to each other by not being there in person. So certainly you have all these platforms that exist now that people can access each other remotely. And so, you know, I'm someone that on a, on a personal level, I've always loved the person to person, the, of politics, the interaction, the, the, the social aspects. You're a of very door to door person. Yes. <laughs> despite, despite well, we all, we have this argument all the time. It's like, okay, Tom, I, I know you love, you love the ground game. You love going door to door and talking to people. It's energizing to you and it's your thing, but we still got to do a little bit air, air stuff. We well, need certainly, reach. certainly. So, so certainly the, certainly the air games, um, uh, you know, airtime, all of that stuff, those terms that I've heard you use, you know, the, the, the and time that's, that's technically why the, the telephone town hall is such a beautiful thing is it's a blend of both. To, to, to me. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It is. So what's happening is, so we can, we can go and talk to people. So as I say, I've lived in the riding that I represent my entire life. This has been my lifelong home. And so for me to go out there and talk to neighbors is, that's not work. That's, I love it. I get to meet people. I hear their stories. You know, it's, it feels great. And one of the things about politics that is the most rewarding is that if you can help someone on an individual basis, or if there's something that you can, you can help them with provide information and stuff like that. You, you see that immediate reward. Um, you, you feel it that you've done something, you've changed a person's life on a given basis. And so those face-to-face conversations that happens, um, that, that, that it, it's just something that it's one of the most beautiful things about the job. It's organic for you. Yeah, for sure. It is. So right now, as we call through people and we, we're making those individual calls, you know, there's thousands upon thousands of, of people living in the community. You're not going to reach them. So one of the technologies that existed uh, some time ago um, is these telephone town halls. I think they were 
you can correct me if I'm wrong. Again, you know this better than I would. But um, but they were they they seem to be a lot more popular. There seemed to be a lot more of them some years ago, and then and then. I wasn't hearing as often about them. And it was a very intriguing technology because it allows, it allows you to be able to reach a huge amount of people from the comfort of their own living room, the comfort of their own home or wherever they are, which is obviously a huge um, opportunity to, to do that. So during, um, during COVID, I've done uh, messages to the community to try to encourage social isolation because it's so important that we all do our part to thank them for and to continue to encourage that, to let them know that um, we're here to help them if there's any issues um, that they're having or experiencing. Certainly we've received lots and lots of calls and we're calling people back uh, every day. Um, but what we did was I partnered with our local city councillor, Anthony Palooza, a great guy, someone I've known for many years, whose his office is really Shout out to hard. Anthony. Yeah, thank you. And, um, and uh, we partnered with, um, with Dr. Jacobs, who is chair of the Ontario Specialist Association, uh, who works at the local Humber River Hospital that services, mainly services our community. And so it gave us the opportunity to reach thousands of people. Um, the doctor spoke a lot about detailed information, medical information, um, everything about, you know, from the perspective as a doctor, we went over some of the programs and, and what's available out there. And we gave people an opportunity to, to share what they're experiencing, what they're going through. And I, and I had so much positive feedback because people were saying, look, I'm hearing what other people are going through. And, and that's, and that's, um, <clears throat> it was, it was a, it was really a great experience. And even the people that didn't get a chance because you only have so much time, you know, I think it, I think it lasted about an hour. You're not going to get through all the conversations. Right. You only get through a small amount, but all of those questions that I got that didn't get answered on air. Um, what I was able to do is reconnect with the doctor and we are specifically contacting every single person that, um, that had questions um, to, to make sure that they get their answers uh, we also send out regular emails to let people know what's going on with updates. If there's any new programs that are available, I'll right. let people know um, what's happening. And and so we've, we've been able um, to really keep in touch with people, even though yes, like I'm not knocking on doors, which yeah. I would love to be doing, but certainly this Maybe is Maybe there's like a, a weird device that you can develop to just like knock from two meters away and then just stand back and talk to people. But I guess maybe that, that might actually start to be an option in the warmer months, maybe. And um, obviously, there are risks yeah, I, and and no, I, uh, things in detailing that. There, there are details to that and risks to that, of course. Um, we have to listen to the health experts, the medical officers of health. Right. Um, and certainly, there are ways to reach out to each other, you know, um, through a phone call. And um, that's something that um, that we're doing every single day. And and uh, people really seem to appreciate it. Well, and, thank God um, it's not an election year because essentially, I mean, uh, being able to knock on doors and get get the essence of what's in a constituency's mind is the essence of uh, of, of of political elections. And thank God that there's no election happening currently uh, because that would just not be an element. Everything would just, you wouldn't even need to have a campaign office. You would just be spending money on ads and whatever else. And I, I can't imagine what's going on south of the border in terms of the logistics on the ground. I mean, they, they I believe they canceled one of the, the primaries or the conventions in, in New York. It's just in, insane. It's insane. And I don't even understand 
this is definitely a crossroads for the democratic process south of the border and a very, very incredible stress test to see what's going to happen there. I'm going to be watching um, um, very closely as to how that happens down there. Um, it's incredible. Um, one of the things that, um, so we talked about my, so I am critic of the Ministry of Government and Consumer Services, but um, but uh, but in fact, I'm the critic of government and consumer protection, government services and consumer protection. And um, but I'm also the critic of auto insurance. And so, uh, yes, of course, auto insurance is something that um, that the NDP have been very active uh, prior to COVID. You know, my community joins other GTA communities such as Brampton and Scarborough of paying some of the highest rates in the entire country. Right. Meanwhile, Ontario has some of the safest roads in all of North America. And um, we, we had introduced legislation to end postal code discrimination. Um, we, I had uh, introduced um, legislation uh, earlier Talk, in class. Detail what postal code discrimination is. So, so um, insurers basically allow, um, as, a, as a risk factor, they call them, you know, so like your age, your, your accident history is, is one of the ways in which they determine your rate. They look at that and they just say, okay, this is how much of a risk you are. Well, they started saying um, what they look at is where you live. And so it, ha- it happens to be that some of the, the most marginalized communities, um, communities with large amounts of renters, people working minimum wage, part-time jobs, people without benefits, people that are really um, struggling to make ends meet outside of COVID are paying some of the highest rates, not just in Ontario, uh, but across the country and perhaps even in the continent. So... This is something that was a big concern. Now, what has happened is that you've heard, even from insurers now uh, under COVID, um, that insurance companies uh, are seeing a reduction in accidents, claims. This has come out of the mouths of... A reduction in driving, yeah. We see that at the pumps, right? I mean, you see that everywhere, reflected in all driving aspects, traffic, price of gas, just general everything. Absolutely. And so what we saw is a reduction. So, so they have used the language speaking up to 50% reduction in, in accidents uh, and driving. And so we, as the opposition, myself and other members of the NDP have been started putting a lot of pressure on the government to tell the regulator to immediately cut rates, lower rates by 50%. The regulator must tell the insurers to do that. During the period of social isolation, certainly over the next couple of months, few months, um, to reduce rates by fifty percent. Because if driving is being, you know, is is re- is reduced by fifty percent, if accidents, if claims are reduced by that significant amount, then certainly the government should not allowing that savings to be passed on to these large insurance companies. It should be passed down to, to regular everyday Ontarian drivers who were already paying some of the highest rates in the country. Without COVID, I had legislation to go in and, and, and deal with with um, bringing the rates down to you know to something that's more reasonable. And was um, the legislation voted on, or was it voted down by the government? In power? The government, the government voted it down uh, under the previous Liberal government. Um, actually, the f- current federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh had brought in legislation that would have ended postal code discrimination. The Liberal government voted against it. Um, this current government has voted a uh, Groton Singh, uh, you know, a colleague of mine and Jagmeet's brother is an NDP MPP out in Brampton as well, had brought in um, s- similar legislation dealing with postal code discrimination. 
And uh, that was voted against by the conservatives. I had legislation I, I worked on with an economist from the Schulich School of Business and someone who's an expert on auto insurance about modernizing how operating costs are, are charged by insurance companies, talking about their return on investment, which is basically like the profits that they build into the rates. So if, if drivers feel that they're being gouged, if we're gouging drivers, if we're paying such high rates, why are they able to collect um, such high profits when, when Ontario drivers are the ones that deserve relief? So tell me why the government would vote down such obvious legislation or even in this moment in time when driving accidents, just general auto-related infrastructure issues are down 50%. Why would so, the so government hesitate? to vote in place um, that so, level of production. Okay, so my legislation was pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the final thing it did also was 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 try to get more information, more transparency in the industry because we need to see, you know, if you want to drive in Ontario, you, you have to have insurance. You have to do business with these companies. We think it's fair to be able to see what's going on with them, right? If they're going to charge these rates on a, and if drivers are going to continue to report on being gouged, then we need to know what's going on. Not only um, gouged, was, this, not only gouged, but the... In the post nine eleven world, where the stock market tanked, suddenly insurance premiums for cars started going up. Why is there that weird mechanism in private insurance, um, private car the, in the private car insurance industry? Why is it weird? And obviously, the stock market has tanked in this current environment. In addition to people driving less, so do you see? If if it's the same thing that happened in post nine eleven, where insurance rates start to go up, um, because they tie the premiums to the stock market health, um, why does that exist? Why do we allow private companies, private insurance companies, to play roulette with uh, insurance premiums? Look, these are the, these are the type of things that if we increase transparency, we'll, we'll we'll get to understand specifically what they're doing. And I think drivers deserve to have answers. As yeah, to it's like black magic or are, something. What's going on pre-COVID? But during COVID, for us, um, we you know we we think it's simple. Driving was down. If the insurers themselves are reporting that it's down fifty percent, that accidents are down fifty percent, claims are down. Um, make it simple. The regulator has the ability, the government has the ability through the regulator to say, let's reduce rates by 50% or the next few months um, during this period of uh, social, uh, self-isolation, social isolation, um, where while there's less driving, there's less risk and let's respect drivers and let's pass on the savings to them. They're struggling right now to make ends meet. And instead it's, it's going to companies. And so um, with a lot of pressure, we've heard some talk about some insurers potentially offering rebates. And what I'm hearing from drivers is, all sorts of different scenarios out of that. Everything from no rebate being offered to if it's a rebate, it might be a couple dollars a month to essentially them being offered the equivalent of fire and theft, which is always, you know, so, okay, you know what, tell their insurer, we're not going to drive the car. We're just going to park it in our driveway. But you, but drivers have always had that opportunity. So people are not seeing, um, or they've been offered what, what we, the NDP, what I've offered, what the official opposition in Ontario are offering, which is a 50% reduction across the board. Right. Now, of course, I've been, I've been um, trying to get more and more information on it, and uh, I was recently able to obtain some information from Toronto Police Services that actually went, and, and I asked them to compare, um, I asked for some data to, to look at from them that would compare um, a, the one-month period of March 15th to April 15th last year, uh, 2019, compared to the to the 
same period, March 15th to April 15th, one month. Let's compare the data of last year to this year. In fact, accidents were down, are down 75% in Toronto. Wow. 75%. And what are, what are we hearing right now? Um, you know, that's something that I just put out there recently. And um, what are we hearing? Uh, Nothing. Discussions. Yeah. Disappointed drivers. Um, we have a simple But plan. nothing from the insurance companies. And do you see that level of pressure once you, let's say, ramp up the campaign to for that 50%? Do you see at all the province wanting to capitu- capitulate to that plan? Because let's, let's be clear. I mean, the Doug Ford government, a lot of their um, constituent or their base is... Uh, hails from suburb areas, the 905 in Ontario, uh, the GTHA, the Outer Ring, and they're all drivers. So I would imagine that this is um, this is going to be an item of concern, even for his political base, um, because it's a very, it's a pocketbook issue that's going to start hitting home uh, a lot more over the next few months. If they don't choose to do anything about that, why do you think that would be? There, there are. What excuses have they given in the past, pre-COVID, when they voted down legislation that would allow for greater transparency and a reduction in rates? They, they, they are not apologetic, uh, based on the fact that um, we bring legislation forward that that is in support of Ontario drivers and respects Ontario drivers, and. Um, they just they don't support it. They side with the insurance companies. There's there's they. Is it because of lobbying? Is it because of campaign contributions? You know, what's what's it about? You know, I don't want to speculate, but um, right. you know, it's here's the reality. We know that driving is down um, significantly, and based on the information I've now just literally recently obtained uh, within a couple of days ago, that that in Toronto 75%. accidents are down seventy five percent. Incredible and. and Toronto drivers are not seeing a reduction in their premiums over the next few months. This is something that the government has the ability to, um, to implement through the regulator and they're choosing not to. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately um, I encourage, you know, your listeners, I encourage everyday Ontarians. I mean, they're the opposition too. When, when you hear something that you're not happy with, if you think that you have some insight or how government policies are affecting you um, your loved ones, or you know, areas within your expertise. Certainly, every driver is an expert on on what they think is fair to pay. Yeah, this is it, you know, it's up to all of us to let the government know that this is a priority. And so, when I've done town hall meetings on this in the past, they were pop- many people would come out uh, very, very with a very active um, viewpoint, saying that we really need to hold auto insurers to account. This is something that I hear daily. I continue to hear that now. And so we have a simple plan. It doesn't put the onus right now on individual drivers to have to now negotiate a potential unknown rebate at some later point um, with their insurance company. Right. Let's reduce rates across the board. The government has the power to do it. Side with drivers. And I'd also be curious, because, I mean, a private insurance regime is not necessarily... The only option, I mean, and trying to fight tooth and nail to get legislation in that uh, that contains them a little bit, contains the excesses, contains the abuses. 
I mean, out in BC, they have a, a single payer system, public insurance system, which is working out quite well. I'd be interested to see what they're doing in response. And that would be a nice comparator to see what the Ontario insurance industry does during this um, during during this pandemic, during the lockdown, during the 75% reduction in accidents and collisions in Toronto, how the public system versus the private system compare in not only their premiums, um, the the policy changes that they might implement, uh, it would be very interesting, and that would probably be a good control in in order to show what can be done versus in a in a public system versus what is not being done in a private system. I mean, I can we can compare it to the you know the insurance regime south of the border when it comes to healthcare. We've seen what. A bit of a dog's breakfast that is when it comes to the response to to this pandemic. I mean, each state and the different layers of regulations and providers and paperwork and insurance companies and who's covering what. And I mean, I was speaking to a doctor the other day who is from Taiwan, and he was explaining about how the accessibility of healthcare in Taiwan is so it's street level. They literally have sidewalk clinics because they see and not just in the response to the pandemic but they have they have it uh they have it there in order to create this idea of accessibility because it's a public good it should be accessible there shouldn't be hoops to run through to jump through in order to get uh your health in place and i think a a, a public system for auto insurance would uh provide similar accessibility um, to that. And I know the NDP have had that as part of their platform in the past. And I think it would be a good platform in the future. I mean, um, it's been a very big struggle to get to wrangle in the auto insurance regime. And I'm glad you're on that file because I trust no one more to handle such an important file. Um, so moving on a little bit, I'm, how has this affected you on a personal level? How's everything doing with the family? Um, certainly, um, on, on a personal level, I, you know, my mother is elderly. She lives with my wife and I, and my, my son, and, um, certainly, uh, so you have all age, three generations, three generations in the household. We do. And, um, so certainly, you know, I'm abiding by the social isolation rules and that same, um, this is something that, um, you know, I'm living a life like I have the same concerns, you know, she's my mother, she gave me life and I love her and. She's in the vulnerable population, but it's not just her. It's my elderly neighbors. It's, it's my community. You know, I have many, I've been privileged to be able to have many great friendships. Um, And there's a lot of uh, people who are seniors that are my dear friends. And I love talking to them. I've learned so much from them. I continue to over the years and I think about them and, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I reach out to them. I try to reach out to people. Um, I'm doing that every single day. And I, I, you know, it, it certainly is something on my mind. And that's why I'm encouraging people to to listen to public health experts. And um, that's something that um, that I know that everybody is doing. That, and and I, thank and God really... technology like this exists that allows us to connect. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'd all be going a lot more stir crazy, either that or trying to solve the theory of everything. <laughs> yeah no i you know certainly my my focus is is on on today right now and um you know ensuring that we advocate for people that need the supports the people who are most vulnerable those in our long-term care 
um, all the issues that are within certainly my credit portfolio, uh, credit portfolios, but um, for, for tenants, for small business owners that are struggling. And this is something that, you know, when you're in politics, um, it's, it's, politics is a 24 hours a day. Um, it's 24 hours a day, you know? So I, Certainly, I, 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 I think about my own family, but, um, but I think we all need to think of, of the greater family of humanity. We have to think about our neighbors. We have to think about everybody because we're all in this world together. Um, you see that as we address this crisis and as we deal with it, um, it's all hands on deck. So even if you're home and you're, you're self-isolating, you're, social, you're, you're doing social isolation and, and you're, you're abiding by those rules and everybody's doing, you know, we're doing that right now you're helping. So we're all in this together. Um, we're all affected. And this is part of the reason that I'm a new Democrat, that, that our actions affect one another. And that yeah. um, you can't, how, how can a person feel? And, and I certainly, how can you feel full when your neighbor's hungry? You know, right. you can't. So, so this is something that, um, I've been seeing so much outpouring of uh, support, love. There are people that are out there making donations and I thank them, you know, supporting food banks, all sorts of ways, creative ways that they can help one another. There are people that don't have the means to be able to do that. And yet they're picking up the phone every day, reaching out to, to each other, um, to check up on each other, to, to see, you know, vulnerable populations if they need help to find ways to do that while, while um, abiding by social isolation rules. Right. And so, you know, it's certainly, it's something that's on my mind every day. I, I, yeah. Well, I'm glad you made those, those sentiments clear because it is really all about us coming together and trying to, I mean, we, we touched on that theme earlier in the show about coming together and push, uh, pushing forward together and making this a little easier on everyone. Those who don't have the capacity to help outside themselves or their immediate family, it's understandable. But those who have the means, whether it be time or resources or materials to dedicate to others, there are many options online to uh, assist. And uh, like I said, I may look uh, into some of those and, and list them below. Tom, I really appreciate you coming on the cast today. Uh, it's been excellent to talk with you and touch base with you. We've been keeping in contact quite a bit over the last little while and it's been great and we've had lots of long discussions about uh about the state of things and i i really appreciate you being here and for those who want to reach out to tom or find more about him um you you obviously have a public presence so maybe perhaps give your twitter yeah rakosovic t i'm at rakosovic t yeah tom rakosovic on facebook instagram um, yes, definitely. Uh, reach out. I'm providing information. Um, I'm accessible. Uh, we, we, you know, we're, I'm active. We're active every day. We're, we're supporting people. We're reaching out. I'm here. Um, we're in it together. And, and I really want to thank you for the opportunity to, to speak in this format. Um, wish you all the best in this, in, uh, in, in your interviews moving forward. I certainly enjoyed this and enjoyed the, appreciate the opportunity. And again, to, to everybody out there, um, Every person is doing their part in their own way in, in dealing with COVID, in, in dealing with this. I, from the bottom of my heart, want to thank everyone. I especially want to thank our essential workers, whether you're stocking shelves in grocery stores, um, whether you're a first responder, um, but we're all essential. And finally, uh, our healthcare providers that are out there on the front lines every single day, 
um, putting themselves in harm's way to save lives, to protect us all, and and you know our public health experts. This is important. So let's reach out if you if you can help someone, do it. But reach out to a loved one. We're not alone. Let them know that we're in it together. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. And I hope to have you again as a regular guest on the cast in the near future. And uh, thank you for so much for the time today. Give my love to the family and to the staff. And we'll talk again soon. I wish you and yours health and safety. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye.